Have you ever been warned? Okay. Think about the word warning. I think you all probably know what I'm talking about. Either by somebody or in some way, you got notified that there is a potential danger or some type of harm or a consequence that's undesirable that's approaching. And you better beware. Now, perhaps it was as a child and your mom or your dad said to you, you do that again and fill in the blank. And you knew if you repeated that behavior, things were going to get ugly for you because you'd been warned. I remember a high school football game I was playing in and me and the guy that was covering me um, were mixing it up pretty good after the play one time. And as I was walking back to the huddle, referee grabs me by the jersey and says, next time that'll cost you 15 yards. I was warned. Last summer, my son and his family were vacationing on the East Coast when local authorities evacuated the area due to an oncoming hurricane. And they were warned. Danger's coming. It's not safe to stay here. You got to evacuate. Now, then again, (laughs) because of the way things are in our society today, it kind of seems like we're getting warned 24-7. Because of lawsuits and million-dollar damage awards that get won by crazy lawyers, um, manufacturers of products uh, work hard to warn us of every possible danger imaginable. I mean, think about it. Have you, have you guys seen any of the drug advertisements on TV? I mean, the warnings about the potential side effects take longer than the potential benefits of the drug. I was watching TV the other night, and I heard this one (laughs) advertisement about a drug that ended with the statement, do not take this drug if you're allergic to it. And I thought, if you knew you were allergic to it, who in their right mind would take it? I mean, does does that really need to be said? One social commentator recently remarked that we are so bombarded today by warnings that we're becoming almost immune to them. We just kind of stop listening or we don't read them anymore. And when you think about it, sometimes it does seem like warnings have gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. Like, take for example, this warning on a Razor scooter. It goes like this. This product moves when used. I mean, isn't that kind of obvious? The thing is on wheels, right? Or this warning on a chainsaw. I mean, really, do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. I'm trying to imagine who it is that needs to be told, don't do that. I guess just look for somebody with no fingers, right? Or this, warning on a sunshield. Do not drive with sunshield in place. Seriously. I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, I kind of want to meet the guy who thought driving with a sunshield in place was a good idea. Um, but here's my personal favorite. Superman costume. Warning label reads, This costume does not enable flight or super strength. <laughs> Think about that. 
If you honestly think that this costume can make you fly, how likely are you to stop and read the warning label before you jump off of something tall? I mean, really. Now, friends, today we're in the third and final week of our lesson series entitled Fully Functioning Followers Go. And what we've been discovering during this series is that Christ expects his followers to go To go into their homes, their schools, their neighborhoods, their workplaces with the good news of God's love. And when you think about it, it's a message of hope in a world that is hurting. It's a message of healing in a world that is broken. But it's also a warning in a world infected by sin. In some of Jesus' very last instructions to his followers before returning to heaven, he said these words. He said, go. Not stay. Not hole up in your church building. Not hide from the big bad world. He said, go. Engage. And do what? What's he want us to do? He says, go and make disciples. In other words, as we go into our homes and workplaces and neighborhoods and and communities and, and, and schools, go introduce people to Christ. Help them get or understand who he was and why he came and why he died on a cross and rose again. And who are we to go to? He said, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, everyone. No one's off limits. No one is beyond God's reach. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them. And and baptism is kind of that, that moment where we identify ourselves with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And not only that, but teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now this is a tall order because it makes us remember that being a follower means being obedient. Ooh. Being obedient to Christ's commands. It means giving him control of our thoughts. That's hard. Giving him control of our attitudes. Giving him control of our words and our actions. And what that means for every one of us at various levels is life change. Life change. And it's not easy. And it typically doesn't happen overnight. But it can be done through God's grace and power coupled with a genuine desire on our part to obey, to be obedient. And during this series, we've been asking the question, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, how do we go? How do we do that? What is our attitude as we go? And what is our mindset or motivation as we share the good news with others as we go? 
Now, two weeks ago, we learned that in order for us to go, we have to go with love. First of all, a love of Christ that compels us to obey his command to go. But on the other hand, a love for those we come in contact with that prompts us to share the good news with them. And then last week, we learned that we must go with patience, with patience. We as Christians have to understand that we can't force anyone to accept the good news. Manipulation or pressuring is counterproductive. And our job is not to do that. Our job is simply to go and to share the good news when the opportunity presents itself and live a life consistent with that good news so that when people hear us speak the good news, our life also presents it and presents it well. But ultimately, whether another person accepts it is between them and God. That's, that's not our deal. Now, friends, if you weren't able to be here the last two weeks, I would encourage you to either watch those messages online at our website, or if you, if you prefer a CD, you can pick up a CD at the Welcome Center. They're free. But today's lesson is entitled, Fully Functioning Followers Go with truth, with truth. Now, our focus verse for this lesson series is something that was written by the Apostle Paul, perhaps the most effective Christian missionary who ever lived. It's up on your screens. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Let's all recite it together. Here we go. Telling the good news is my duty, something I must do. And how terrible it will be for me if I do not tell the good news. You see, Christ's followers, like the Apostle Paul, and those of you that consider yourself Christians, and me, and churches like Good News Gathering, we're called to tell the truth. The truth about God. The truth about the world in which we live. The truth about good and evil, right and wrong. The truth about ourselves and and our need, every one of us, for a Savior. Truth about the good news, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for our sins. And not just to die on a cross, but to rise again from the grave, conquering sin and death. Truth about the impact of sin on our lives and and the good news that there is forgiveness and there's hope and there's healing through Christ. Truth about life, that this life is not all there is. There's more than meets the eye. This life is simply a dress rehearsal for an eternity either with Christ or without him. Either in God's presence and in his love or separated from him in his love. You see, truth operates on two levels. Truth can be a blessing if we're willing to accept it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always easy or that it's always comfortable or that we always like it initially. 
remember something my dad used to say when I was growing up. He'd say, son, sometimes the truth hurts. And there were times when it did. But he was right. And when we conform our lives to the truth, life just seems to go better. On the other hand, truth can operate as a warning if we're inclined to reject it. I'm not talking about warnings for the terminally dim-witted, like don't drive with a sunshield in place, but truth about the impact and the consequences of sin. Truth about eternal destinies. Now today we're going to learn about going with truth from an Old Testament prophet by the name of Ezekiel. So let's go to God in prayer and then we're going to get down to work. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And for this opportunity that we have to look into your word and to learn. Father, help us to clear our minds of any distractions this morning so that we can hear you speak to us through your word. Father, we're thankful that we have your word. Help us to learn from it and to change because of it. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now friends, if this is your first time at Good News Gathering, you received an outline when you came in the auditorium. It's a white sheet with holes punched on the sides, got all the scriptures and fill-ins that will help you follow along with this morning's lesson. If you want to go ahead and take that out, we'll be getting to that in just a moment. But today's account is found in the Old Testament, that part of the Bible covering the time before Christ, or B.C., okay? And approximately 1,450 years before Christ, Moses led the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Perhaps many of you have seen the movie, right? And they established their nation in what was called the Promised Land. And the reason that they called it the Promised Land is because God had promised their forefather, a guy by the name of Abraham, and his descendants that they would inherit that land, this land that we now know today as Palestine. And over time, that nation grew after they they got out of Egypt and they settled in the promised land. The nation grew in strength and, and they had these three kings, first one Saul and then David, probably the most famous king, and then David's son, a guy by the name of Solomon. But when Solomon died, approximately 930 years before Christ, his son was unable to hold the kingdom together. He was not a good king. And civil war broke out and the kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And the southern kingdom had its capital in Jerusalem. Now, Moses had warned the nation for 400 years before this that as long as they followed God, they would enjoy peace and prosperity in the land. But the northern kingdom was led by a succession of very evil kings who rejected God and led their people away from God. And so the northern kingdom suffered and was ultimately conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, though, had some good God-honoring kings, 
But even the southern kingdom over time began to drift away from God. And in 606 BC, the southern kingdom came under control of the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Babylonian Empire stretched all the way from modern-day Iraq on the east all the way to Egypt in the west, okay? And at first, the Babylonians did not destroy Jerusalem. Here's what they did. In exchange for not destroying the capital, they left the Israelite king in place but required them to pay these huge sums of tribute money every year to the Babylonians. And they took many of the best and the brightest out of that area and transported them all to Babylon. This was incredibly smart because essentially what they were doing was they were taking those people who were the highest educated and the people who had leadership potential and they were taking them out so that they wouldn't create rebellions or unrest. Now, if you were to go direct from Jerusalem over to Babylon, it would take you, it would be about a 500-mile trek. But between Jerusalem and Babylon is the Arabian Desert. It was uncrossable at that time. And so they had to take a circuitous route following rivers where they could stay close to water to get to Babylon. It was about a thousand mile walk. And the first wave, for many of, the, of you that have been doing the Bible reading plan through in a year, you maybe remember a character by the name of Daniel. Daniel was taken out in the very first wave of prisoners in 606 B.C. Daniel of Daniel and the Lion's Den fame. And he went to Babylon. Or you may remember reading about a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. He was left behind. And he, was, he warned the Israelites who remained behind to return to God or, dis, or further disasters would come. And they did. Nine years later, the Babylonians, who were irritated by the unruliness of the Israelites, came in and took a second wave of the best educated and the most political and religious elite folks left and relocated them to Babylon. And Ezekiel was removed in this second wave, most likely because he was a priest. Priests were some of the most highly educated people in that culture. He was probably 25 years old at the time. Now, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, priests played a very special role in society. The Israelites understood that in order to maintain a relationship with a holy and perfect and sinless God, sinful people had to approach God with a sacrifice for their sins. Sinful people needed a go-between to present that sacrifice. That was the role of the priest. There was somebody who could present their sacrifices to God in order to atone or make amends for their sins. To make them at one with God again. Availing them of his forgiveness and mercy But five years after Ezekiel arrived in Babylon, in 592 B.C., God called Ezekiel to another role, the role of the prophet. Now, the role of the prophet and the role of the priest are very different. 
The role of a prophet is also a go-between, but in a very different way, or a different, maybe another way to think of it is a different direction. Because the role of the prophet begins with God, who gives or divinely inspires the prophet with his word. It's a message that comes from God to the prophet, who is then expected to relay that message to the people. And to deliver it to them. And sometimes, as you read through the Old Testament, God's word took the form of instructions about how the people were supposed to live in accord with his will. Sometimes it took the form of a call to return to God when the people had rejected him. And sometimes it was predictive in nature. In other words, God was showing the prophet how to interpret the events that were happening around the people and also sometimes warning them of what was to come in the future. And Ezekiel was given a tough message to deliver to the exiles in Babylon. He was told to tell them that Jerusalem, their beloved capital city, would be reduced to ruins. And it was six years later. The Babylonians by that time had had enough of Israelites' rebelliousness and in 586 they destroyed the city and they tore the temple to the ground. It was a horrifying event for Israelites. And God likened Ezekiel and his prophetic role to that of a watchman. The Bible says this, The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. Now that role of a watchman doesn't mean a whole lot to us today because we don't don't really have that in the same way they did then. But in those days, watchmen were soldiers who were stationed on a city's walls. Or, the, or on towers that were located at the corner where walls came together. Or sometimes watchmen were located on hills outside the city at a distance where they had a view of further distances away. And it was kind of like an early warning system so that anyone who was outside the walls would have enough time to get inside after the warning was sounded. And those inside the walls would have enough time to shut the gates and man the defenses. Now this was a job that was 24-7. They worked in shifts, but it was obvious that these guys were expected to let everybody know if all was clear or if there was an enemy approaching. They had to tell the truth. What is reality outside the walls of our city? Because the life of the city depended on them telling the truth. Not opinion. Not, you know, you know guys, in my opinion, there's, there's nobody out there. No. Tell the truth. Is somebody there or not? Not feelings. Well, you know, the idea of enemies doesn't make me feel safe. So I'm just not going to believe that anybody's out there. No. Is somebody there or not? Tell the truth so we know what to do. Rain or shine, hot or cold, 
Day or night, these guys were on duty, working in shifts to make sure around the clock there's nobody out there that's going to harm us. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life. That wicked person will die for their sin. And I will hold you accountable for their blood. Whoa. But if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. In other words, you did your job. You warned them, but they didn't listen. That's on them. But you know what God's God's not done? He goes on, he says, again, when a righteous person, so first he's talking about people who, who continue in sin. But then he turns to a righteous person. When a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Oh. But if you do warn the righteous person not to sin, and they do not sin, they will surely live because they took warning, and you will have saved yourself. You see, God is using the watchman as an illustration. And he's telling Ezekiel and all of us that as we go into the world, we have a duty to warn people if there's danger on the horizon. Now, the Bible is clear, and you see this in Romans 14, 12, and there's other passages that that bear the same idea that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God, okay? In other words, all people are individually responsible for their own actions. The Bible is very clear on that. And each of us will stand before God regarding our own actions. But you know, when Jesus called his followers to go, he appointed us in the same way that God appointed Ezekiel as a watchman, posted to protect and preserve others by warning them of danger on the horizon. And granted, each person is responsible for their own actions, and the Bible's clear on this, but you and I, as modern-day watchmen, if we call ourselves Christians or followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to inform others of the truth. We do. We have a responsibility to tell the truth. What's out there? What's on the horizon that presents a danger to people? So, friends, if going with the good news means telling the truth, 
what truth must we tell? What is the truth that we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ must present to the world around us, to the people that we come in contact with? And friends, I believe that there are three truths, three truths that we must tell. And the first truth is probably, you're going to probably go, geez, Jeff, that's kind of elementary, isn't it? But we're going to start simple. The first truth is this. There is a God. There is a God. Now, I can imagine if you're sitting here in church today, there's a pretty good chance that most of you believe that. And that's why it may seem elementary to you, but it isn't anymore. Studies indicate that the percentage of Americans who identify as atheists is going up. Especially in the teens, 20s, and early 30s-something age ranges. The numbers are going up dramatically of people who self-identify as atheists. People who believe there is no God. Studies also indicate that the number of people who identify themselves as nuns is going up. I'm not talking about Catholic ladies that wear habits. I'm talking about people who identify with no religion whatsoever. They're not atheists. They're not theists. They just don't identify with religion at all. And those numbers are going up. So let's talk about that first truth for a moment. There is a God. Think about it. If you're looking at the big picture here, you only really have two options. Either there is a God or there isn't. And if there isn't a God, then the question becomes, how do you explain what you see around you? How do you explain how everything got here. Well, perhaps evolution explains it. In other words, it just happened. By some process that we cannot currently explain, something came into existence out of nothing. There was nothing, it exploded, and then there was something. And over billions of years, some random natural forces operated to bring about all that we see today around us. Every growing thing, every tree, every forest, every, every animal that walks along the ground, every human being, every star in the sky, it all just happened. Something from nothing. And because of that, because it all just kind of happened, there's no particular meaning. There's no real purpose. There's certainly no life after death. We're born, we die, we're done. That's one option. There's another option. We see it in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
As you read on through that chapter in Genesis, you see God creating everything that we see around us. And the question that we have to ask the world around us is which makes more sense? Which makes more sense? You see, the very first truth is that there is a God and that is a truth that we must present to the world. The second truth is this. God has made himself known. He's made himself known. In other words, it's not just that there's a God out there, but it's impossible for us to figure out anything about him or to know what he's like or to know what his will is for his life. God exists and God has made himself known. And I believe that he's done that in three ways. First of all, the Bible tells us in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, what the Bible is telling us is if you want evidence that there is a God, go out at night and look up. Go out at night and look up. Because the heavens declare the glory of the God, of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, just by looking up, you get a sense that there is something very powerful and something very majestic and something very orderly because it works. It works. Orbits work. We're perfectly positioned to stay just the right amount away from the sun and just to to not get burned and to not freeze. If you want to believe that God has made himself known, look up. The Apostle Paul also wrote in Romans 1, he said this, he said, the wrath of God, now friends, I know when we use the word wrath in our culture, we tend to think of somebody who's angry, who's mad, who's perhaps out of control, enraged. It's very different. The wrath of God is God's judgment, settled judgment against evil and against that which defies his character, which is good. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what it's telling us is that there is a good and an evil, a right and a wrong, a true and a not true. And the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them. Hmm. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We had a life group at our house a few months back and I opened one of the sessions with a question. Is there anybody in the room that would argue with me 
that the world is not as it should be. Anybody want to argue that? Anybody look at what's going on around us and say, you know, this is, this is perfect. This is the way it ought to be. Things are just fine. And everybody in the room proceeded to argue with me. They're like, no. Look around, read a newspaper, watch the news. Wars, terrorism, genocides, racism in our country. Sixty-some years after Martin Luther King marched on Washington, D.C. Child abuse, you name it. Think about it, friends. We have just emerged from the most violent and bloody century in human history. Anybody out there that says the human race is just getting better and better needs to wake up and smell the coffee. Okay? Or maybe we should put a warning label on the, on the human race for people like that. Okay? Few would argue that the world is as it should be, but why do we sense that it's not? Why do we sense that? Why is it we think, you know what, things aren't fair, things aren't right, things aren't just. Why do we even think that? Because if we're all just products of random chance evolution, then the way we act is just the way we act. There is no right or wrong. There is no grand scheme of good and evil. It's just, hey. I mean, let's face it, we're just higher life forms of the animal kingdom, and if you act a little bit more animalistic than somebody else, what's not to like? It's all about survival of the fittest anyway, right? There's no right or wrong, good or evil, but you know what? If there is a God, then that sense that we have that things are not right makes sense. And if it makes sense, then we can say, that's wrong. That's right. That's good. That's evil. You see, we sense. And we know in our being, because we are created beings, that something's wrong. And we know that sin and evil entered the created order. And friends, the very first way God has made himself known is he has made himself known through his creation. Through his creation. Because we are created beings, we have the imprint of the divine on us and we have a sense that there is good and evil, right and wrong. Now there's a second way that we know that God has made himself known to us. The Bible tells us in the Apostle John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The world became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In this passage, John is saying Jesus is the Word. In other words, the very expression of God. 
God making himself known to us in human form so that we could know what God is like. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God thinks, look at Jesus. If you know how God would speak, listen to Jesus. If you want to know how God would treat other people, watch Jesus. You see, God made himself known, not just through creation, but also through his son. But there's a third way that God made himself known. The apostle Peter wrote this at the beginning of a letter that he wrote to a group of Christians. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see how he consistently matches Jesus in God. But then he says this, his divine power has given us, circle this phrase, everything we need for a godly life. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And then it says, through what? Our knowledge of him. Our knowledge of him. We have everything we need for a godly life. Everything we need to know about how to live a life that is consistent with the will of God, we know through our knowledge of him, Jesus Christ, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So how do we have a knowledge of him? If we have everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, how do we know him? Friends, it's through his word. How do you know what Jesus said? It's in his word. How do you know what Jesus did? It's in his word. How do you know anything about Jesus' life? It's in his word. Otherwise, all you have is opinion. All you have is, well, this is what I think Jesus should be like. Or this is what my Jesus would say. Or this is what my Jesus would do. Or this is how I feel about Jesus. No, it's right here. This is what he said. This is what he did. And right here you have everything you need for a godly life because this is how you know him. 
fact, Peter went on to say later in that same chapter, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, everything we need for a godly life We know through his word, through his word. So not only is there a God, but he has made himself known through his creation, through his son, and through his word. And lastly, the apostle Paul said this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. In other words, he's he's telling a young pastor by the name of Timothy here, we need to be praying for people. We need to be interceding for them in prayer. We need to be asking God for them to be open to the good news. And he says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, truth number one is that there is a God. Truth number two is he has made himself known. And truth number three is God wants everyone to be saved. Friends, that's good news. That's good news. Especially when you consider that he is a holy God and we are sinful people. And instead of us today having to offer sacrifice through priests, Jesus came as our priest and sacrificed himself on a cross for our sins so that we could be at one with God. We could be united with him. Not only now, but for eternity. Now, friends, this morning, I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. Um, That's between you and God. And I know that there are some people here this morning who have not yet crossed the line of faith. On the typical Sunday morning at Good News Gathering, according to our surveys, Somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 11, sometimes 12% of the people that sit in our services have not crossed that line of faith. They're still just kind of checking things out, and that's awesome. We're glad to have you here, and we hope you'll just keep coming. My friends, on that Connect card that you have, if you look on the back of that Connect card, there's three boxes there, and I would like to just direct your attention to that left-hand box I could. And like I said, I don't know where you're at, but perhaps you've been thinking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe you have some questions that you would like to get answers to. Maybe there's there's just some things you'd like to talk over before you make that decision. And if that describes you, I hope you'll just check that box. And you'll put your contact information on the front of that card and we'll contact you this week and we'll make time to sit down and talk with you. 
and try to answer any questions that you might have. Maybe where you're at on your spiritual journey at this point in time is you've crossed that line of faith. You believe that there is a God and that he sent his son into the world to die on a cross for your sins. And then his son rose again, conquering sin and death. But you just never got around to being baptized. And as you know, Jesus instructed his followers to do that. To identify with his death, burial, and resurrection and baptism. And if that's where you're at, I hope you'll check that box. Because our Christmas baptism is coming up on December the 15th. We've already had people sign up for that and we're already having meetings with them about what that, what that means in their life. And we'd love to have you join them. Perhaps you're already a follower of Christ and you're looking for a way to go into the world and to make an impact here in our community. And in that center box on that Connect card, there's an indication of the free sale, which is coming up on December the 7th. And this is a time when the Good News Gathering family comes together and brings together just a ton of things that can be helpful to people who are in need. You also have a a thing in your bulletin that explains that in a whole lot more detail. I would encourage you to get involved in the free sale as we impact people in our community who are in need. Friends, I don't know where you are, but I hope that this week you'll take whatever step of faith that Christ is calling you to. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and for this opportunity that we've had to look into your word. And Father, we're thankful for your word because that's how we know about your son. That's how we know how he lived. That's how we know why he died. And that's how we have the hope. Because it tells us he rose again. Father, help us to be people who go into our world with the truth about you and your son. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, amen.